I'm Mike Gorman, and you're listening to the Celtics Pod podcast for Celtics Blog. Here's your host, Adam Taylor. everybody happy friday i hope you guys have been enjoying the media exit interviews and the special guest appearance that we had on thursday today we're joined by former celtics blogger king writer over at the athletic i'm sure jake won't like jake king won't like me saying that but mr jared <laughs> Weiss, how you doing today jared i'm good i mean if he's gonna go by the kid i might as well go by the king right yeah i mean we can question him on this when he's on next week but uh, i definitely think that's a fair trade-off mm. You know, whatever I got to do to make it in this world, but I'm just happy to be back talking to the Celtics blog fam. How you been doing? You've been keeping well during uh, COVID? Uh, yeah, I mean, shutdown was pretty crazy. Um, and then I didn't sleep through most of the playoffs. Now the playoffs are over. I'm in bliss. I get to kick back, relax, and enjoy life a little bit. What do you guys have? Do you like just literally have like um vacation time at this point? <laughs> Excuse me. Um, <coughs> all right, you might want to edit that part out. Um, <laughs> oh, there we go. Um, so no, not yet because of the draft and free agency and the outside chance there's a lockout um, and like stuff like Daryl Morey deciding to quit all of a sudden. You know, there is a crazy amount of news that's still going to be around. So I think probably by late December, I'll get the hell out off the face of the earth and go hibernate somewhere for a few weeks. I'm hoping travel restrictions are gone by then and I can go uh, get away for a while, but I'm not too optimistic it's going to happen. But usually it's like usually the month of August to mid September is that vacation time for people around the NBA. So I think that's going to be basically mid December until mid January this year. Do you have anywhere you'd like to go specifically? You obviously don't need to give the, the city, but like a state. And <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, I, I got a place in Italy I want to go visit. Or I got a friend that's got a spot there um, that's sitting there unused. And they said I could go stay there. Uh, but I have to find a way to get to Italy legally somehow. So that's the hard part. So I might have to go hide on a in a container on a ship or something like that just to make it over there. But hopefully, uh, hopefully things will turn by then that I can actually make the trip. But if not... You know, I'll find I'll find somewhere warmer than driving distance in the continental United States. Italy's amazing. Which part have they got a place in? Uh, in Sicily. Yes, yeah, Sicily. So I've uh, always wanted to see Sicily, Amalfi Coast, all that area. So I'm hoping I'll finally get a chance. Although, hey, Australia wouldn't be too bad right now either. Australia would be amazing right now. That's your safest bet for warmth. I mean, well, Phoenix is my safest bet for warmth. It's 100 degrees there every single day. <laughs> yeah, I forget that um, you guys have, you can drive places warm. I have to fly places warm. Oh. Jealousy setting in already. So let's jump straight into this interview. So the first question I've been starting everybody off is, what was your personal high point of the season? Whether it be something you've written, somebody you've met, interviewed, uh, just anything personal that was your high point of the year. Wow. Um... Ooh, that's a tricky one. It was a it's a good year. Um, I mean, I guess the first thing that just comes to my mind was the very beginning of the year. I got to start going full time um, at the Athletic, and for anyone that remains, reminds reminds uh, remembers me from when I was writing for Celtics Blog and hosting the Garden Report back in the day, 
uh, at Celtics blog. I mean, that was, I was doing all of that while working a nine to five job for the government. And it was a lot of work. And, um, you know, while the hours are one thing, splitting it between two different, completely different careers, having to go to two different places every single day, it's like, that's what made it really exhausting. And so getting to just go all in and be doing this full time and having my whole life dedicated to this, you know, I'm still, still working pretty close to the same number of hours, but I don't really care because I enjoy 99% of it. Um, so that's been really great. And then as far as story that I was really happy with, I think the one I was most proud of was, I did a story with John Krasinski, who's our Timberwolves writer, um, about how the NBA partnered with Yale to come up with a new COVID test. And we put that together in what uh, it was like a 5,000 word feature that usually would take months to put together. And we managed to put that together in like four days. And then we did like a couple days of rewrites after that um, and follow up interviews. But the amount of work that it took, I was on the phone with a spokesperson from the FDA on a daily basis for like hours every single day, just to make sure the facts were accurate and everything. And I worked extremely hard to make sure that the scientific aspects of that story were accurate to the point that it was like one of the most scientifically accurate stories on COVID testing that is out there at all on the internet. So that was something we were really proud of. And it was just fun to get to work on something of an actual human interest importance beyond sports that also had a big sports angle to it. Um, and then, you know, it's one of those stories where the people that you're writing the story about are so grateful to you and you forge these new relationships. And, you know, through that, I ended up becoming friends with a bunch of world-class epidemiologists and researchers and they're, you know, the people I'm going to go have lunch with whenever it's eventually safe to have lunch with people. And so, you know, it's those experiences that, make journalism really you know great and worthwhile because as i came from a career right when i was working for the government where my whole career was dedicated towards helping people helping the public that kind of thing and so when i went to start doing sports journalism full-time you know part of me was very worried i wasn't going to be making an important impact on people's lives anymore which was definitely an important driving force for me and thankfully i've been able to find ways to continue to do that in my job yeah. It, well, the funny thing was, I mean, I, it seemed like people definitely received it pretty well, but it got pretty buried because I believe the day or day, I think that same day that it came out was the day that the Raptors and the Celtics started talking about doing a walkout. And then the next day the walkout happened. So it got, it got completely buried and I'm trying to break it out every once in a while to get a little bit more attention to the story. So it performs better from a metric standpoint, but, um, but you know, enough people saw it that I think the, not only was it just a worthwhile story, but it also had a lot of really vital public health information that it's really important for people to read just so they have a much better understanding of both how COVID testing should be conducted, how you need to try to you know, seek out testing, and then how we can return towards normal society in the future once we have more comprehensive testing built out. How did that change your outlook on COVID? And like, do you feel like you're more clued up around it now because of the information you received? Yeah, it actually dramatically reduced my stress over COVID because I'm like anyone, I'm living in constant fear of it. Um, despite what my uh, scumbag of a president says, uh, you should be living in fear of COVID because uh, it is a real, it is a serious issue. And just because you live in fear doesn't mean that your life is ruined. I mean, I live in fear of getting run over when I cross the street, which is why I look both ways when I cross the street. You know, it's like, you know, the, the fear mongering is is saying don't live in fear of COVID because like you you can live in fear of COVID while also going about your life and just being cautious. And so 
Um, the big thing that I learned from that was that we are so close to having widespread change in how we're able to test for and identify and track COVID. And, you know, I mean, my country's done a horrible job with it and uh, it's been kind of a nightmare. And obviously we have, you know, massive swaths of our country that have been, uh, that have been brainwashed by propaganda to make them actually not even take it seriously, which only makes the problem worse. And so uh, that's just been so frustrating. But thankfully, we're on the precipice with the breakthroughs like Saliva Direct, which was the Yale and MBA partnership, where we're finding ways that we can start doing mass testing on a daily scale um, and make it affordable so that, you know, if, you want, if, like, if you're a student on a college campus or you work for a large organization uh, in a big, you know, if you're working like a big building or if you're going to a certain part of a city, there can be there can be ways that they can do testing to get immediate results and identify if you're someone has COVID and therefore needs to go in isolation. And so we can start doing that on a regular basis to the point that hopefully at some point early next season, they'll be ready to have fans coming into games where fans can, you know, get tested at checkpoints heading towards arenas or maybe they get tested at home and they have to bring the results in or whatever it is, but they'll find ways that they can identify whether fans can enter the arena safely pretty much on the spot and they'll be able to be reasonably safe in the way that they get fans into arenas. And that Saliva Direct was a real big breakthrough within itself, right? Because before that, it was the, the swab that had to go to the back of your nostrils and back of your throat, which was like incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah, it, it's one of, I mean, there's several different variations of that, and they weren't the only ones that were trying saliva. Um, but they definitely were one of the proponent, like the first proponents for using saliva instead of you know shoving a, a swab up your nose. Um, and that changes a lot of things because hopefully eventually, um, instead of having like somebody in full protective gear, you know, doing it in like a very safe, like very uh, sterile environment, uh, isolated from everyone, you can just literally be handed a little tube and just spit in it yourself. And it's just so much easier to collect those samples. And that's actually a huge part of it. So between what they're trying to do, which is trying to make it easy for people to collect saliva and then get it, um, get it, at, uh, what do you call it, tested at a lab nearby for a pretty quick turnaround time. Then there's other labs that are doing different ways. There's all sorts of rapid tests, which you know, would be probably like how they would do it with fans, where you just spit onto a piece of paper and then within 10 seconds, it gives you your result. You know, there's going to be a combination of all different types of tests that are going to serve different purposes and are going to be used at different cadences, I guess. But Saliva Direct will be, I think, the kind that can be used kind of at an institutional level for different companies, organizations, and so forth to stay on top of COVID on a daily basis. All we have here at the moment that's the widespread is the nostril test. And I know so many people that have kind of said, I'm not going for a test because I don't want to have to go through that. So, yeah, I mean, as you say, having that multitude of different avenues that you can go down testing and track the virus is essential in order to contain and then eventually suppress the pathogen. The next question I have for you moving on is what was your most challenging moment for you throughout the season, whether that be somebody you met that was abrasive or trying to get a story where the information just wasn't readily available, uh, Zoom calls, whatever it may be. Wow, that's interesting. I mean, there's been plenty of moments where you've gotten denied for a story or you didn't get called on during a Zoom presser. That was really frustrating. Um, honestly, actually, it would be uh, 
when I was covering the finals and um, after every finals game, I go back and I basically rewatch the game through an app called Synergy. In Synergy, it literally cuts all the clips of every single action on the court, um, usually almost immediately after the game is over. And for some reason, for finals, like game five or something like that. And, I, and by the way, I was um, after the Celtics season ended, I shifted my role to covering the finals um, for, from the Heat perspective because we didn't have a, a permanent Heat reporter anymore doing film stuff. So they had so the Athletic had me do uh, Heat coverage instead, which was great because then my season didn't end until the season actually ended. Um, and I loved covering the Heat because they were such a fun team and a fascinating team. But so, you know, the finals ends at like 1230. I had to do a post-game uh, podcast and stuff like that. So I finally am getting to work at like one when everything is said and done. And for some reason, Synergy didn't have the game up. And I'm, and I'm, a, I'm doing film analysis. So I kind of rely on Synergy to have all the film organized into different play types so I can find them more easily to actually have the clips available so I can just download them and then put them together in quick time so they can go into my story. But without it, I have to manually go through everything and then manually screen record everything. And it takes hours and hours of extra work. Um, and so you might often see people um, put a video into a story and you'll see it say NBA advanced stats up in the top corner. That's because they screen recorded it from the NBA stats website. And that takes a lot of time and it, it makes these big files that have to be compressed so they can fit into the web and all that, all that kind of stuff. So I'm the kind of person that I like to put like 20 different plays in my stories. And if I wanted to do that, obviously it would be, um, it would take me forever to do it. But unfortunately that was a situation. So I ended up working until, I think by 4.30 a.m., I was about halfway through my story. And then all of a sudden, Synergy finally showed up with all the uh, clips. So that made it much faster from there on out. And I was able to find some specific things I was looking for that I was struggling on night to find. Um, but so I'm on the East Coast. So, you know, I, I was trying to sleep in just so my sleep cycle would kind of be adjusted to writing off a post game from the finals. But by 4.30, I was like seeing, I was seeing like, you know, unicorns and leprechauns all over the place. I was so delirious. Uh, but so I managed to eventually get everything done by like 7 a.m. or so. And the story ended up doing very well. And I was very happy with how it came out. And uh, I thought, and I think it was my most read story of the year, actually. Um, and it was just a story that I was really proud of. That I thought was really great film analysis. And I had a lot of front office people and coaches reaching out to me, telling me that they really liked it. So that was really cool. Um, and so just having to do all that where I like, I could barely even see straight. I'm so exhausted. Uh, watching the sunrise and I'm still trying to get it done you know that was definitely a major challenge but that's part of the gig and you know every reporter has been there at some at one point once or uh, once a year or so I use Synergy uh, I don't have the video so I rely on the NBA advanced stats so I, I know some of that pain but none of it on a deadline for the following morning yeah and what's too bad is the NBA advanced stats you used to be able to download it and they made it so you can't download it anymore for some reason they even blocked it so you can't even use like a special application to try to sneak in there and download it. So you, you have to do a screen recording of it. And as someone who's on a Mac, screen recording is kind of a pain in the butt. Um, I'll find a but way. so, yeah, yeah, you got to find a way eventually, of course. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, my whole thing is I do like, uh, the amount of work that someone would put into like a big feature. I basically try to do that all in one night, um, which requires, a lot of late hours, a lot of prep work and stuff like that. Um, but it was worth it because I, you know, my goal was I wanted to try to do the best film breakdowns of the finals that were out there. And I, I certainly think, uh, 
I, I, nothing was not the best. There's uh, there's some people that I read their work. And I'm like, how did I not see that? Like, how did they get that? Um, but it def- I definitely was very proud. I thought it was up to the standard that you would expect from the athletic. So before we came on air, I mentioned to you that I thought your wordplay was probably the best out of all of the, the beat writers and probably one of the best upon the athletic. Just the way you kind of bend words around what you're trying to make it do, the way you structure your sentences to flow really well but have like a ton of basketball information in them one of my favorite series you did was the celtics playbook series so from the start of the season to now how has your creative process changed in how you attack these and how you educate yourself on new aspects of the game and implement that into a way that's still entertaining for a regular person to come into the athletic app and then read through that well, I very much appreciate that. I uh, really do. Um, as far as uh, the as far as the wordplay aspects, I when I was younger, I didn't really read a lot of sports writing. Like I, I read a lot, but I I wasn't I wasn't the kind of person that like really studied the art of writing and all that kind of stuff. Um, I was really for me. I was always I've always been really passionate about hip hop and stand up comedy. And comedy writing in general so I, I most of my writing style is inspired by like some of my favorite rappers and some of my favorite comedians and so i've actually learned more about writing from you know studying rappers or listening to interviews with comedians to talk about how they sent uh, how they structure jokes and trying to you know kind of be, utilize the ideas of less of less is more finding ways to imply the punchline rather than being straightforward with it so i've trying to find a balance of that with trying to be very hyper detailed. And if you go back and you look at my work at Celtics blog, I think it's terrible. I mean, Celtics blog, uh, I think I was doing good quality work and Celtics blog is obviously like one of the best websites that exists for reading, reading basketball coverage of any team out there. But I thought my writing sucks compared or sucks back then compared to where it is now, which is what you always hope for. If you're trying to be a good, good at any job, I think generally you should look back at what you did a few years ago and you should think, God, I was so much worse back then. I've gotten so much better. Um, and so I feel like I don't think I'm good yet, but I definitely think I've gotten better over the years. And so uh, you know, the, the toughest thing for me was I've been pretty good at learning all the detailed stuff, but I think knowing what is way harder than knowing why. And knowing why helps you learn how to distill things so that you can deliver it in a digestible way. And so ever since I got to The Athletic and I, you know, I finally got, got to start working with really experienced editors for the first time in my life and having all my stories really edited every single time and picked apart, it really taught me how to condense my writing and not only just like cut away the fluff and focus on the important stuff, but also how to show, you know, do a little bit of vignettes into deep detail, but basically consolidating the message into something that's both rich, but also digestible. And so that's the thing I'm always trying to work on. And, you know, when you're younger, and especially like me, who I, you know, I, I, my, up until a couple of years ago, I was basically learning how to write without much guidance. It was most, I mostly just self-taught. And so I was just always about trying to write as much as I can, try to put as much detail in there as I can. You know, writing 2,500 words just for the sake that I was able to write at a massive word count. And then, you know, a couple of years ago, I started working for a new editor. And he's like, this is all just wasteful. You don't need any of this stuff. You can save this for another time. And I started to notice that 
when I would start writing, reading stories, unless they were captivating in the first 600 words, I wasn't really going to finish through. And most stories that were 2,500 words long, I was, I wasn't going to finish any of them. And so, you know, eventually you kind of start to realize your own mistakes and start to grow from them. And so I think this year, because it was the first time I was writing on a daily basis and had to write at a certain standard of quality and was having an editor examine all of it, that gave me enough reps that I think I started to grow over the course of the season. It's interesting how everybody kind of finds their own way in writing as well. Um, one thing I'm very big on at the minute and I'm working towards and I'm still miles away is finding your voice. And your work is very recognisable in the sense of if I read it, I know it's Jared that wrote it, which means you're doing an excellent job of finding that voice. And that kind of leads me into the, the next question. Um, and myself and John Corrales touched on this and I think it's quite pertinent, especially because so many people want to break into the sports media world and this is one aspect that isn't spoke about very often so it's a roller coaster right in terms of like mental fortitude and highs and lows so what was your lowest point of the season what was the one point where you were just like either re ridiculously stressed or you just needed to stand up and walk away from the situation i didn't have that this year but my moment of truth was just sheer luck. You know, I, I'm only, I, my career is mostly here. I mean, I mean, you, you it, like I had, I got lucky at points where I needed to get lucky uh, for me to get to where I am. And I'm someone that definitely agrees with, I think it was John Wooden. It's like you cr said, you create your own luck or something like that. And, you know, luck is about preparation and opportunity, whatever, whatever it was that he said, I definitely agree with it because, you know, it's not like I'm just a completely random writer that got lucky. It was that I worked and worked and worked and didn't make much progress. And then eventually a lucky break would happen once every year or every couple of years. And for me, the big thing was I was writing for um, US Today Sports Media Group's uh, Celtics Wire, which is something I created um, when they were launching their Wire program. And they had a bunch of us creating, you know, local verticals uh, under the USA Today brand. And the requirement was to write like i think six stories a day on average every single day and i didn't realize that they meant literally seven days a week not even five days a week until after i already started um and so that was extremely grinding especially because i was also the editor of the site so i had to write the story double check the story to make sure it was good and then do all the other stuff and you know of like getting the photo for it, get, filling out all the SEO stuff, you know, tagging everything. Like it was, it took almost as much time to prepare the story to actually be published as much as it was to actually write the story. So it was an insane amount of work and I was doing that on top of my day job. And it was just so unbelievably, it was just it was such an incredible amount of work um, for not, you know, for a, a fair compensation, but certainly not enough for me to be able to walk away from my day job that, I was, I, I was, I was actually ready to give up once the season was over. And I was, I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to finish out the season and then I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to walk away from this because it's just too much. And it's just, I, I'm not sleeping at all. And I'm thinking about it constantly. And I just can't handle it. It's just too much. So I'll just, you know, I'll go back to Celtics blog and write for free. And, you know, hopefully somebody else at some point will give me another shot. And thankfully in April of that season, so I guess April 2018, uh, the 1718 season, the athletic Boston was announced and they came to me and they offered me a, ch a chance to write part time. 
Um, and it was a godsend because the athletic was, uh, it was everything that I had hoped for in a site and that it was a place that wanted me to just write one or two features a month. They didn't want me to write a crazy amount every single day. They were going to give me lots of editorial and training support, a big audience, eventually all that kind of stuff. And so it was just like the perfect timing because I was just, I was so overworked that it wasn't really going anywhere. It was straining my personal life and my relationships and my health. And I was like, I guess, I, you know, I, I thought I was, I was hoping that this would be the moment that would tell me, but I guess it just isn't going to happen. I think I'll have to walk away. And thankfully, right, right when I got to that point, the athletics swooped in and I ended up doing really well at the athletics to the point they eventually decided they wanted to bring me on full time. And I think it's gone pretty well ever since then. So, you know, the, there was a make or break moment where I definitely could have walked away from this completely and just gone back to being a hobby. And I'm very glad that that didn't happen. And it's hard, right? Like walking that line between it being a hobby uh, with something that you're pursuing longer term as a goal and still being able to see the family, hit the gym, stay fit, actually do stuff that you did before you decided to pursue something. So going from there to, getting to where you are that must be kind of rewarding when looking back like all those late nights and ridiculous hours spent editing my own work because i didn't have an editor where it becomes vindicated it's justified at that point yeah god forbid i feel bad for whoever has edited my work they deserve a Nobel prize for that but um yeah i mean what i think the beauty of it is that nowadays you can you can your hobbies can be a part of your future you no longer because of the internet and because especially if you care about writing or talking about sports if you're, if you're serious about it and you have a purpose and a goal and you think of a way to try to set yourself apart and you really try at it you can have success with it and for me i never when i started writing about basketball i never thought it was a possibility that it could be something i could do full time um i my whole i was all focused on working in government and policy and just wanted this to be something I could do for fun on the side. And then once, you know, once I started to have progress, I started to take it more and more seriously. And I still didn't really ever think it would go anywhere, but I just thought it would, I just wanted to at least, because I cared about basketball and the NBA so much, the idea of having some sort of impact on the NBA was incredibly exciting for me. Um, and so that's kind of what motivated me. And then, it, you know, the, your goals get higher and higher and higher as you start to realize them more and more. I think anyone that's listening to this, whatever field it is that you think you could do something really special in that you truly like that's something that you think about while you're at work all day, find, just find a way to just start dipping your toe in it and, you know, create some real goals for yourself and take it seriously. It, it could actually go somewhere for you. And that leads us on to the final question of this exit interview, which is what was the most, how can I word this? I'm just going to have to be blunt with it. What was the funniest moment of your season? Oh, definitely. I mean, I'm sure there's some better ones, but definitely when I put in a in a Celtic story, I think it was my Celtics exit piece, basically, when the season ended. And I put a little note in there about how sources have been saying that Victor Oladipo is, you know, looking to move on from Indiana. And I woke up the next day and it was like, I woke up pretty late that next day. And it's like everywhere. It's like the big story in the country and it, I'm getting tons of interview requests and all sorts of stuff. And I'm like, what the hell is this about? And then I see that Bleacher Report pulled it out of my story 
And I think they, I can't remember if it was them or somebody else kind of twisted the words a little bit to make it seem more dramatic than what I really did, which is of course how aggregating always ends up being. Um, and so it blows up like crazy. And I go to my Instagram and I'm getting flooded with messages and comments from Pacers fans who are furious with me. And they're making all sorts of memes, calling me like calling me an idiot. Um, some stuff that I probably shouldn't say on here, so I won't, but uh, just like all the, all these Pacers fans who I, I started like looking through them, like, who are these people? And like, they were all clearly high school boys. Um, like literally every single one of them I would click on, it was like clearly a high school boy. Um, and so they started making all these crazy memes. But, but my favorite thing would be that, I, I'll, I guess that's the cleanest way I can put it, was all these people would comment, uh, they would say, yeah, Jared, we're going to get your ass. We're going to get right in your ass. Go go to hell, Jared. And then somebody else would comment, no homo, bro? And then the guy would be like, oh, yeah, yeah, no homo, no homo, no homo. But we're going to get your ass, Jared. It was it was just so unbelievable. It was just so sad and pathetic. I'm like, oh, I remember being a pathetic teenage boy at one time. It's you know the saddest experience. Um, but so, yeah, it took, it was like basically a week of every time I would open my Instagram, there would be like, a hundred comments of people literally commenting the letter L like 50 times, which takes a lot of effort. And I was very impressed with their effort or people in my DMS telling me that I should go to hell or I should go kill myself or the athletics should fire me for, um, for reporting fake news. And then the best part was that Victor Oladipo did an Instagram live with fat Joe of all people Fat Joe, and fat Joe asked him, so, like, are you going to come to the Knicks? And Oladipo says, I'm a pacer, man. I'm just, I can't control these rumors. I'm just focused on rehabbing my knee. And then that created a whole new wave of every, all these Pacers fans getting all over my Instagram like crazy. And they're like, see, he denied it. You're fake news. Why are you making things up? And of course, besides the fact that, like, there were a bunch of other reporters in Indiana and outside of Indiana that there were a couple that even said, like, literally, that my, my report specifically was accurate. There are plenty of people I've been talking about it. Um, the, the thing that was so funny about it was that Oladipo didn't say the rumor is not true and I'm going to stay with the Pacers next season. He said, I'm a Pacer and I'm just focused on my knee and I can't control the rumors. And what was great was a friend of mine named Scott Agnes who co- used to cover the Pacers for, uh, for the Athletic and is the best Pacers reporter out there. Um, no offense to every other Pacers reporter, many of whom I love. Um, but so Scott did the story saying this is word for word verbatim exactly what Paul George said right before he handed in his trade request in Indiana. He said, I'm a Pacer, man, the exact same thing. And so, you know, I, I didn't I didn't respond to any of them. I think there was at one point somebody sent me a message that I thought was funny enough that I actually responded. And of course, within like a few messages, the guy's like, Hey, I'm really sorry I said all that to you. You're actually right, and I hate Victor Oladipo now. So it was just so funny to see all the like, all these uh, all these like teenagers reacting that way. Um, and you know, of course, Victor Oladipo is probably going to get traded at some point, and uh, I very much look forward to all those apologies. But um, I, that stuff it's it's mostly entertaining. You know, as long as someone's not like making a serious threat, which does happen every once in a while, and that's a pretty big deal. As long as they're just saying, like, I hate you and go to hell, stuff like that, that that's what's funny. And the memes are the funniest part. Um, so as long as you're, you know, as long as people are acting civil about being idiots, it's not a big deal. 
I mean, if you, if Valadipo does get traded, they're either going to apologize or completely blame you for putting the idea in his head because that's the way. That's they... right. It was definitely my fault. No question. Yeah, you um, you obviously picked up the phone and said, Victor, this is what you need to do so that I can be right. And he said, No problem, bro. I got you. Well, the, just the one thing that I didn't that was so confusing about it was that before I put it in my story, I went and I talked to a bunch of people around the Pacers and I said, like, Hey. You know, I've been hearing these rumors the entire year, and I'm pretty sure I've seen a few people report on these rumors. Like, this isn't something brand new, right? And everyone I talked to said, like, yeah, these rumors have been out there for a while. You know, you can put it with same sources, say, but they're like, this is something that everybody already knows about. So it's not a big deal. So I put it at the bottom of, I tucked it deep into my story, thinking that nobody would think anything of it. And it was so it was so confusing that it got aggregated the way it did because like I remember hearing about these rumors like months ago, so I, I have no idea why it happened that way. It was good for business, but it was not what I wanted, and I would rather it not happen because I mean the one thing I definitely don't like is when you report something and then and then people start attacking the player that you're reporting about and then they have to deal with it because like I'm not trying to cause trouble for these guys. I'm just you know, I'm reporting the stuff that basically that they're already letting out there like you know the talk the talk of the town every time i'm in indiana and talk to people from indiana is that oladipo has been making it known that his camp is looking on elsewhere and uh, and i'm sure this is rumbling has been out there plenty but miami was the place that they've always been looking at but i don't think the feeling is going to be mutual unless oladipo can show something pretty remarkable this year but with his injury history i don't think he's going to have the kind of um you know, the kind of uh, competition for his services that he was hoping for. But I hope, I hope it works out for him because he's an amazing player. Great story. Really fun player to watch and hell of a singer too. And I'd love to see him flourish. That pretty much wraps up the exit interview. Um, have you had an exit interview before? I ask everybody this. <laughs> um, I don't think I've had one. Like I've had one privately where they tell me if I get to keep my job or not, but no, I've not <laughs> had one like this. Although okay. I guess you can you can tell me if I'm still part of the Celtics blog alumni club. Oh, most definitely, you're uh, top two. Does that mean I get to I get to have dinner with Jeff Clark once a year now? We can ask Jeff. Oh, that would be great. I miss Jeff. Jeff listens to this quote regularly, so he might DM you after hearing the end of this. He better listen to this. It has his Celtics blog on it, and I I say this every time I'm on a Celtics blog production. I owe my career to Jeff. Um, he, I mean, I have my career to several people, but he certainly is one of them. He gave me a chance. Not only did he partner with uh, CLNS Media Network when we were, when we were really early off and begging to get any sort of audience, and he really embraced us. Um, but he also let me start writing for his site and gave me pretty much free reign to do my you know, to write however I wanted to write. And I, I, I was, it was me and Kevin O'Connor covering the Celtics for Celtics blog uh, while we were at the games and uh, being able to do that gave me a life that I really, you know, like I got, I grew up a Celtics fan. I, I was a, a huge NBA fan and I love basketball. It's my favorite passion. The fact that when I was younger, I was, or I still am, I got to go work the games and get to write about it and got to be there up close. It was a, uh, you know, it's kind of a dream come true, and I really owe an incredible debt of gratitude to Jeff for that. And there are many, many writers across the NBA that started at Celtics blog and owe a great debt of gratitude to him. Yeah, I, I'm, I've got nothing but good things to say about Jeff. He gave me a shot. He continues to give me a shot. 
and I get to produce content on a team that I find captivating. And then I'm literally working in the footsteps of people like you, Chris Grenham, Kevin O'Connor. I think people kind of don't realize how many great writers have actually come through that production line. So I consider Celtics blog the number one Celtics website on the planet at this point. And I'm biased, so I don't know how much you can take. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's incredible. And I, I think Jay wrote for Celtics blog too, also back in the day. Um, and oh God, there's, I mean, there's so many, there's so many more. And Bill Sy is, it continues to be there. And Bill Sy is my favorite in the world. Um, my favorite Bill, my favorite Sy, my favorite Bill Sy in the world. Um, you know, there's just so many great people that continue to be there and be part of what's a pretty iconic institution. And what one day someone independent of me, because I can't do the story because I'm biased, but one day someone's going to have to do a story of like uh, a feature on like sto- places like Celtics blog that had such a great diaspora of so many great writers uh, coming out of it. Um, and I would, I, cause I'm sure there's so many more people that I just, I'm forgetting about or don't even, didn't even know we're writing there. Uh, but you know, it's like, uh, what, what was that? There was some college, I forget what it was. It was like a small school that produced tons of like athletes across pro sports that like nobody had ever heard of. I forget what it's called, but, um, yeah, we'll call it Celtics Blog U or something like that. Yeah, we're going to have to find somebody that's non affiliated to write that. It's going to have to be a completely independent investigation piece, investigatory piece. Yeah, we'll get like Ronan Farrow to do it. <laughs> we, could, we should make this a thing. Jared, (laughs) thank you for jumping on, man. I appreciate you very much. Guys, have a great Friday, and we'll be back again on Monday. Yes, Monday. We will be back on Monday.